Food and Drug Administration, Ms. Powell. May it please the court, Lindsay Powell for the government. I've reserved five minutes of my time for rebuttal. Congress has for decades required textual warnings regarding the health risks of smoking. And there is no dispute that, the, that smoking results in the harms identified in the statements at issue here. These warnings, of course, differ with respect to their size and the inclusion of images. But Congress identified three considerations unique to cigarettes that warrant this approach. First, these products are dangerous and addictive when used as intended. Second, the vast majority of smokers begin when they are teenagers. And third, there's a long history of small text-only warnings that have shown to be insufficient in this context. In, in your view, and of course they will get to speak for themselves, but in your view, uh, on the record here, uh, how much of what you just said have these plaintiffs agreed to or not agreed to? So I believe plaintiffs maintain a dispute with respect even to whether the warning statements themselves are factual and uncontroversial. That's fairly astonishing given that there is a scientific consensus with respect to whether smoking causes each of the harms identified here. There's simply no scientific debate. So with respect to the warning statements, which again, given the, the history and the undisputed harm, seems like something we should be able to take for granted at this point, that this the, is something that can the, be done consistent with the First Amendment. The statements as distinguished from the, from the, the pictures. Yes, Your Honor. That uh, plaintiffs pick small fights as to these. So they say that cause overstates the relationship between smoking and the harms that results. But this is the way cause is used in normal speech, in science, and the way it's been used in the Surgeon General's warnings. So the, the history of these warnings includes this use of the word cause. Uh, one of the four warnings says smoking causes lung cancer, heart disease, and emphysema. Um, and so the, the dispute with respect to the warning statements is along those lines. I'd be happy to go point by point and explain why those are unfounded. That's also addressed in our brief. But we do think that the warning statements should be uncontroversially constitutional, given the history, given the science, given the record here. <clears throat> the size and the inclusion of images is new. That's, that's not part of the history we have here, but there's a, an extensive record compiled both by Congress, which established the requirement that the warnings be as large as they are, and for the images, which were specifically chosen and implemented by FDA, that's amply supported by the record. I would love to go image by image, point by point, with respect to those two. But before I do, all right. But in, but in regard, and back back to my question, you're you're answering my question. I appreciate it. But specifically, uh, you mentioned about the children, uh, and I, I don't remember the other points that you mentioned. But I was just trying to establish your view of what they agreed to. So, what 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 about the danger to to children in terms of, in terms of what they have and have not agreed to? Your Honor, I'm not sure whether their brief says one way or the other, whether they agree with respect to the way we've articulated the harms to children, but the, the record shows, and again, as a matter of science, it is uncontroversial, that the vast majority of people begin smoking as teenagers. They become addicted and become lifelong smokers, and that's, that's one of the things that's particularly pernicious and dangerous about these products, is you have teenagers who don't understand uh, at all the harms of smoking, making these decisions that have lifelong consequences. So an another of the things too that they say with respect to the, the warning statements is that these are granular concerns, that you don't need to know that a product 
will cause type 2 diabetes, that it can cause bladder cancer, that it can cause COPD, if you already know, for example, that it can cause lung cancer. And that's another astonishing claim for them to make. Of course, there's an interest in knowing that a product can cause those serious harms. I, I think a helpful analogy here that, that um, refutes some of the things that the, some of the fights they're picking with the statements is if you consider that on toys, we require, toys with small parts require a warning stating that the small parts in the toys can cause choking. They present a choking risk to children. We require that statement even though the number of children who die each year from choking on small toy parts is in the low single digits, thankfully. I think it's also uncontroversial that if a particular toy also presented a, a fire hazard, that it was flammable, we would accept that you could additionally require a statement about flammability on that toy, even though it also presented a choking hazard. There's a long history on all sorts of products of requiring the identification of risks inherent in the product, even when they really are more remote than the harms we're talking about here. Here we're talking about a risk of amputation. There are about 170,000 people who undergo amputations in the US each year as a result of peripheral arterial disease, for which smoking is the number one risk factor. And these are things that people do not know. The record shows that people simply don't know that smoking will cause these harms. The, the same is true with respect to the images, and I want to address those point by point, but I also want to note that the, both Congress and FDA have made clear that the different aspects of these warnings are severable from each other. So even if the court were to find that there's a problem with an image or with a subset of these images, the remedy needs to be tailored to that problem. So FDA explained, and I'd be happy to go through the specifics of how this would work in different scenarios, but FDA... So we would look at each different, like say, oh, that one's over the line. So we would say that shouldn't be in the rotation. Yes. That particular one's over the line. If it, we, should, we should go piecemeal. Yes, Your Honor. The court must go piecemeal because these, these can stand on their own. Um, and so the... What about the photo, the image versus text? Should we go... Should, can we say, oh, well, the text is okay, but the image is the problem, and it should be like in the choking example. You know how they have a diagram of a child choking, but it's not a, it's not a photograph; it's a diagram. Yes, Your Honor. That's yes, absolutely. And this is this is much of the point with severability. If the if the court were to find, for example, that the textual warning statements are uncontroversial, can clearly be required consistent with the First Amendment, but took issue with all of the images, even. The, the larger revised warning statements stand on their own, and both Congress and FDA have made this clear. Uh, and if the court likewise were to find that just some of the images go over the line, then the valid images could nevertheless take effect, and the ones that the court found problematic would be uh, set aside. So and F FDA spells out the scenarios very clearly in the preamble to the final rule and explains how they could function on their own. We know that text-only statements can function on their own. There's a whole history of that happening. Um, how do we decide whether something is controversial? What's con... You know, if it's scientifically true... I, I understand that we might disagree about science, and then that's controversial because different people think different things about whether that actually does... You know, people can argue about various subject matters in the news today. Um, but is it, it's not controversial that, that these things all cause these cancers. That's correct, Your Honor. And I, I think the... Is it? Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah, I'm sorry. Is it? That's my question. I'm not making a statement. I'm asking a question. Correct. The, the record clearly shows it's not controversial that smoking causes 
there's not like some group of scientists writing a great Barrington declaration that the smoking doesn't cause cancer correct. in these ways, is there? That's correct. No, the record is very clear on this. Smoking causes to the, the highest level of scientific uh, causation. Uh, this is in the Surgeon General's reports, further in the rulemaking record here. Smoking causes each of these conditions. And well, what is controversial about this? Nothing, Your Honor. In the in the the plaintiff's view, as far as I can understand it, they would say that essentially any image whatsoever is controversial, simply because people react differently to images than they do to text. What about cumulative images? You know, in jury trials, for example, when they have images of the grisly car wreck or some kind of thing like that. You might say, oh, I let in one photo go back to the jury so they could get, but I don't let in 25 close-ups of the faces of the decedents uh, because it's, it does become overwhelming perhaps for the jury, and there's, there's, there's lots of case law that says you can make those calls. Is, it, is this like that? This is different because each, each of these harms is discrete and unique. It's a, it's a separate harm that smoking causes, and so this, the, certainly the, the intent of FDA and, and Congress in requiring the identification of different harms and images to depict them is not to create this overall cumulative effect, but to give concept, context to and aid in understanding of these well-established, undisputed scientific harms that result from this. And so you have one image for diabetes and one for bladder cancer and one for COPD, and this is not a shock and awe project. FDA went very, very carefully through uh, creating photorealistic images that present pared down uh, images that show aspects common of the disease or its symptoms without extraneous materials, without features that are designed to um, manipulate the viewer, provoke an emotional response. It is possible that someone reading one of these warnings would have an emotional response, that someone looking at the images would, but that doesn't push them over the line to make them controversial. Some facts are upsetting. The fact that using a product the way it's intended to be used can really, really hurt you or kill you might be upsetting, but that doesn't make it less a fact, it doesn't make it controversial, and it doesn't show that the agency's goal was to manipulate viewers or engage in propaganda. The images do... While, while you still have time, I, I, I am interrupting you and I apologize, uh, but you save some time to talk about, you know, Zauderer and Central Hudson so we can deal with the, with, with the law here. Yes, Your Honor. So Zauderer applies to any disclosure in the context of commercial speech, which is what these are, they're required disclosures, that, and the threshold inquiry is whether they're factual and uncontroversial. So again, the, I think it's helpful to consider the, the warning statements first. These are familiar, a familiar concept, long subject to review under Zauderer, and the statements here convey the established scientific consensus that smoking causes these harms. Those should clearly be subject to review under Zauderer, and then it's not an odor, onerous standard of review. They readily re withstand that review uh, because they're related to the government's legitimate interest in promoting understanding of these very real harms inherent in these products, and they're not unduly burdensome. That part of the inquiry goes to whether um, the required disclosure is so extensive, so overwhelming, that it really, truly precludes the speech of the, the, the commercial speaker. So in cases like Ibanez, this court's decision in Public Citizen, and in NIFLA, where courts have uh, found that undue burden standard met, it's been because the disclosure requirement 
truly rules out undertaking the speech at all. So it's not that it takes up 50%. It's that it means that you can't, in Ibanez, the um, issue is whether you could use a certified financial planner designation. And the required disclosure was so extensive, you could not put CFP on your business cards. You couldn't put it in the phone book because you'd need you know, more than that space to fit the disclosure, so you just couldn't do it. And that's not what we have here. There's no showing that 50% of packages and 80% of advertisements, I think as we're talking about the size, it's important to keep in mind there are two different size requirements. On advertisements, it's only 20%. And on cigarette packages, if you keep in mind the size of the package, you're talking about font that's about the size of the, the text of these briefs. So it's really not a huge amount of space in absolute terms. And both Congress and FDA determined that it is necessary to actually convey this information to the public. Under Central Hudson, um, actually going back to the Zouder, the images also withstand review, uh, are subject to and withstand review under Zouder. They're factual and uncontroversial for the reasons I've al already alluded to. Again, I, the court needs to go image by image. So if there are any questions about the ways in which particular images are factual or uncontroversial, I'd be very happy to address those. But again, if you take the diabetes image, for example, it, it straightforwardly depicts a common experience of someone with type 2 diabetes using a glucose monitor to test for glucose. That is factual, it's uncontroversial. It works in conjunction with the text of the warning statement to convey the undisputed fact that smoking causes type 2 diabetes. Under Central Hudson, if it applied, uh, the, both the statements and the images would likewise withstand review. The government's burden is greater, but FDA undertook two <clears throat> extensive and rigorous quantitative studies to show the ways in which these particular statements, uh, both on their own and when paired with the images at issue, would promote public understanding of these harms. And so that goes to the tailoring inquiry. These warnings actually do further the government's interest in promoting understanding. That's a substantial interest, contrary to plaintiff's contention. An informational interest isn't substantial only if you can show that informed consumers will make different decisions. In Citizens United, the Supreme Court upheld a compelled disclosure without looking to whether it would change voting behavior, whether knowing what contributions had been made, who had made them, would actually lead to different decisions. It's enough to know that information is important. This information certainly is. And so making sure that com consumers have access to it is substantial. The warnings further that substantial interest. The government, of course, considered smaller text-only warnings. Those don't work. It engages in public information campaigns. Those are important, but on their own, they are not enough. So each, each aspect of the Central Hudson inquiry is also met. With respect to size, briefly, just so I've preserved this in case we want to talk about it more on rebuttal, the size requirement here, that is established by Congress, not by FDA. So if there are questions about it, that really goes to the validity of the statute itself and not the rule here. But I would be happy to talk about that more on rebuttal. Questions? All right, yes, you've saved time for rebuttal. Thank you, Ms. Powell. Mr. Watson? May you please the court. Ryan Watson for Appalese. It is undisputed that producers of a lawful product have never before been compelled to use their own packages and ads to display massive graphic warnings that convey an emotionally charged government message urging adult consumers to shun their products. And our briefs noted that the government's arguments would likewise allow it to require massive images 
of amputees on fast food packages or of sick babies on wine bottles. The government has never disputed this, which is a shocking indictment of the breadth of its theory. In this case, the district court correctly held that the warnings should not be reviewed under Zouderer because they are not purely factual and uncontroversial, but are instead provocative, value misladen, and misleading. Is the text factual and uncontroversial? Is the text factual and uncontroversial? The test as to whether the Zouderer standard applies? The text. Text. I'm the sorry, text I you said of the warnings, test. not the pictures, the words. <laughs> yes, the, the text, there are serious problems with the text as we explain in our briefs. Uh, the textual warning statements all convey misleading, confusing, or inaccurate messages. But this case is much easier because these warnings are not just text. They well, the opposing counsel says we have to sever if the text, so we have to go through both of them. So what's wrong with the text? What is false about the text? Well, there are, there are several aspects of that question. Severability is something that I would like to discuss, and of course we dis dispute the fact that the government is saying as to severability. But as to the textual um, warnings here, we're not disputing that smoking can cause the consequences that are identified in the textual warning statements. Nonetheless, the record reflects that all of these textual warnings do convey misleading, confusing, or inaccurate messages, and we have citations throughout our briefs on this point. Uh, the use of causal language was one such example, and in the government's own first qualitative study, this is its own study, the most prevalent finding was that participants had a negative reaction to the textual warnings in the, the causal language there, and they were confused by it. So for example, at page 1303 of the record, uh, there was a lung disease warning, and one of the people who viewed it in the FDA's own test said, well, I think this means that you immediately get lung disease from just using one cigarette. That's showing that on the record here, it confused people. But in any, in any event, again, this case is much easier because these textual warnings are combined with graphic warnings that are gruesome. How is that? Okay, back to the, the warning, the text warning. It, hasn't it been since the 60s or something that the original that smoking would cause cancer? And if you said a person would think, oh, you get it from doing one cigarette, you could make the same statement about that warning. You're correct that the Surgeon General warnings have existed since the 1960s uh, and that the word causes is used in some of them. Yes, uh, but we're not saying smoking that the, causes cancer. But we're not saying that the use of the word causes is misleading in every context. We're saying that the government can't carry its burden here on this record because its own studies showed that the use of causes in this context with respect to these statements was confusing. The government But that's the same statement. That it causes cancer, that it causes lung cancer, that it causes this kind of cancer. Respectfully, the Surgeon General warnings are different because they are focused primarily on the primary consequences of smoking, and they often include a list of consequences. In, in that scenario, it's far less likely that someone's going to view the warning and think that smoking inevitably gives you all of those things. But here, the warnings are each focused on one particular specific consequence, which is different. But the government keeps trying to change the subject to the Surgeon General warnings, which of course do implicate the First Amendment, but are vastly different for a host of reasons including that they're far less burdensome because they are small, they're on the side of the packages, and they don't contain images. The size is the Congress is doing, right? 
Congress did include in the statute the size requirement, yes. Are you saying the statute itself is unconstitutional? That, that's not at issue here. Uh, what is at issue here is the validity of the regulation, but it is the government's responsibility to carry its burden. This is undisputed that the government has to carry its burden with respect to each element of the First Amendment inquiry, and it is the case that the government has to show that the burden is not uh, too large, and it has to consider less restrictive alternatives. And here, neither Congress nor FDA did so. FDA did have an obligation to consider the burden, to consider the impact of these warnings, and to consider whether less restrictive alternatives. The, a the, the, the agency doesn't have a choice but to follow Congress, does it? I mean, do, aren't we always fussing at the agencies for not following Congress, if, or allegedly not? They have to follow Congress. With respect, in a constitutional case, uh, the Constitution trumps uh, Congress or the agency, and this is not a simple APA case where an agency has construed a statute and then promulgated a rule. It's a situation where the government has a burden under the First Amendment to show that its compelled speech requirement here is not an undue burden on the speaker, and here the government has not carried that burden. And Can you agency, talk about severability? I'd be happy to talk about severability. There are a number of reasons why the government's position on severability is incorrect. One is that the entire rule is invalid for a host of reasons that we've explained, including that the size, the placement, the gruesome nature of these images, um, that infects all of these warnings. Uh, in addition, even if only the images were legally problematic, the textual statements could not be severed from the images because the TCA provides that they must, quote, accompany one another, and that's in section 201A of the statute. That doesn't, the government doesn't flesh out a textual case that accompany means anything other than that, uh, and the TCA's command that the graphics and the text must go together trumps the government's reliance on the general severability provision in the TCA as a whole. In addition, in the 2012 case involving the FDA's first graphic warnings rule in 2012, the DC Circuit invalidated the rule as a whole, and that's what we maintain is the correct uh, thing for the courts to do here. Setting um, aside- so, you, so you believe it's not factual because some people could think it meant using one cigarette causes diabetes. You think it's not factual because of that? Because that, someone could grossly misconstrue it? it? It is correct that that... Is that correct? Yes. That's your the, argument of why it's not factual? That's one of many reasons why it's not purely factual and uncontroversial. Our, our well, principles. I want to do factual and I want to do controversial. Who, who says, are there, is there a group of scientists that say these things are not true? like I'll give an example to the opposing counsel. Again, we don't dispute that smoking can cause the consequences that are identified in the textual warnings, but the government has the burden to demonstrate that each element of the First Amendment test is satisfied, and this court conducts a de novo review of the record in an independent assessment under the Texas office in the Porter case. In looking at the record here, it is clear that each and every one of these warnings is not purely factual and is not uncontroversial. What is false or not factual and not controversial about smoking can cause heart disease and strokes by clogging, clogging arteries? Again, that, that, that's slicing and dicing the warnings at issue here. We have to look at the warning as a whole, which all of them include these provocative, value-laden images that are essentially screaming at consumers, don't smoke. And that is what the cigarette companies are being compelled 
to say to their own What consumer. is provocative about this person? It's just the person with their chest showing. It does not, like their chest isn't red, inflamed, open up their heart or anything. It's nothing. Pre Excuse me, Your Honor. What's provocative about that? Precedent makes clear that a warning is not purely factual and is not uncontroversial if it's emotional or if it shocks the viewer or if it is one-sided or if it stigmatizes the problem. What about that image is emotional or shocking or any of those things you were stigmatizing? The, the record here shows there was a study done that asked consumers what their reactions to these warnings were. 85% of consumers said that these warnings were trying to make people afraid or were trying to shock people. And that's at page 70, 7638 and 7715 of the record. And FDA's own qualitative studies show that consumers do in fact take value-laden provocative messages from these warnings. They repeatedly describe them as, and these are quotes from FDA's studies, grotesque, gruesome, disgusting, insanely graphic, just shock value, scare tactic, shame, defeat, and disgust. That's all I see. That's the FDA's own studies. In addition, several of the current images here are near parallels of the images from 2011, and we point that out at page 20 of our brief, which the government does not dispute. The DC Circuit held that those images were inflammatory and could not be viewed as rational, pure attempts to convey information. And it's notable in that case, to your, kind of to your question, Judge Elrod, the DC Circuit said that the warnings in 2012 were not patently false, but for purposes of determining whether Zouderer or Central Hudson applies, they were inflammatory images that could not be viewed as pure attempts to convey information to consumers. And that's at pages 1216 to 1217 of that decision. It's undisputed that some of the images, again, are parallel to the ones at issue there. If I could speak about the tailoring requirement a bit, these warnings are burdensome because they combine shocking graphics and text on the top 50% of the front and back of packages as well as the top 20% of ads. The huge size, 50% of the top of the front and back, is unprecedented. And the Ninth and the Seventh Circuits have invalidated far smaller text-only warnings because they were too burdensome. So it, 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 it's, it's interesting to me that you make an argument about what percentage of the package is covered. So going back to the text for a minute, it seems to me that a necessary corollary of your argument about being confusing is that the written warnings actually should be longer so that they give a more complete picture of what is the chance of contracting diabetes or, or, or cancer or whatever from this product. So you would be arguing for the kind of multi-page, small print disclosures that we get when we, when we, when we uh, buy a, a prescription drug, for example. Respectfully, Your Honor, uh, that's not our position. The, it's possible that the government could carry its burden in a future case by showing that the uh, textual warnings are not confusing and misleading, perhaps by just saying, may cause instead of causes, or in some cases, will cause you to have, or can, may contribute to. Uh, again, it would be the government's burden in a future case to show that the warnings it's requiring are not misleading but it's not at all the case that our position necessarily would require a longer warning. It may just require subbing out two words for two or three different words. In any event, the warnings here do include not only the text, but shocking images and highly charged messages that drown out plaintiff's speech by effectively shouting, don't smoke. And under the Supreme Court's NIFLA decision at page 2378 of that decision, 
the court invalidated a warning that was so large and detailed that it drowned out other speech. And that's what we have going on here. The warnings that are being compelled here make all PACs look substantially the same due to their size and their placement requirements, and that impedes competition and the ability of cigarette companies to distinguish their products from other products. Page 42 of our brief includes a visual depiction of how this works. The warnings also interfere with manufacturers' trademarks. So at page 41 of our brief, we show how RJ Reynolds will not be able to effectively use its valuable Camel logo trademark if these warnings go into effect. Moreover, De Novo, I'm sorry, go ahead and do your moreover point. Okay. Moreover, the, uh, the burdens on speech are especially severe here because as the Supreme Court pointed out in the Lorillard case, when a speaker has limited avenues of communication that are left available to it and the government comes in and impedes those few remaining avenues of speech, the burden is especially severe and that's the case here because cigarette manufacturers have very few mechanisms left to communicate with adult consumers and to distinguish their products from other cigarette products. Do, do you agree, I mean, this is de novo straight up, we have to decide whether these are shocking, is that correct? We that, have to make the determination whether yeah. they're shocking? I, I don't understand how smoking can cause type 2 diabetes with somebody getting their finger pricked can be shocking because we see this on television every day with people advertising different companies on diabetes drugs constantly on television with people getting their fingers pricked and, and it's nothing shocking or horrible about this and the fact that there's a small baby on a scale the child is not they're not missing limbs or nothing looking bad it's just a baby lying on a scale how is that shocking uh, the person with his shirt open, the one for the erectile dysfunction looks very similar to commercials for erectile dysfunction medicine with somebody in, in the bed. How, is, how are any of these things shocking? So to the first part of your question, yes, this court does review de novo when a constitutional issue is involved in an administrative law case like this in the Chamber of Commerce versus SEC decision from a recently uh, emphasizes that point. Also, under the Porter in the Texas office cases, the court undertakes a, quote, independent assessment of the records to determine whether the government has carried what is undisputedly its burden. Uh, and the government has not carried its burden here. The question that we've focused a fair bit on in our colloquy is on whether the warnings are purely factual and uncontroversial. And we, of course, maintain that they are not, and the government has not carried its burden. You mentioned the erectile dysfunction, and I'll just give an example there from the government's own study. People that looked at that image thought that it might be about a strained relationship, infertility, insomnia, sleeplessness, stress, or depression. And that's at page 1443 of the record. But in any event, even it, we could set all of these issues aside and just discuss the extreme burden on the speech here and the government's failure to show that it is an appropriately tailored option. And this court can resolve the case on that ground alone. We would prevail even if Zouderer applies, the district court applied Central Hudson, but even if Zouderer applies, this court can simply focus on the extreme and conceitedly unprecedented burden of speech here and say that that is an undue burden, especially considering the fact that the government did not test any less restrictive alternatives, which is an undisputed point here. If we, uh, if we should uh, end up disagreeing with your 
position because we have to consider all the alternatives. So we'll, we will, of course, decide that. Then there are remaining APA claims. Is that right? Correct. All right. And so the question is, uh, again, this is hypothetical. Should we decide those APA claims or should they be decided on remand? So it is within the court's discretion to resolve the First Amendment issues first, uh, but we also have, as you note, APA claims and claims under the Tobacco Control Act that these warnings violate the TCA and that they violate the APA. It would be entirely appropriate to affirm on any ground that's supported by the record. That's a well-established principle. These issues were fully briefed and fully argued below. We had a three-hour oral argument on the merits and discussed uh, the statutory issues as well. Uh, everything that you need is in the record on the APA and the TCA arguments again. Uh, so you certainly could affirm on that basis as well. And indeed, the rule here does fail the APA for a host of reasons. Well, all right. Well, you, you're, you're answering my question, and I appreciate that. You're saying that we can do it. Uh, my question assumed that we can. The question is, from your client's point of view, should we do that or should that be decided on remand? From our point of view, uh, the legal arguments and the factual record are in front of this court and ready for this court to resolve the APA arguments and the TCA arguments, and we think that those arguments all support affirmance as well. So yes, we would, we would urge the courts to invalidate the rule on First Amendment grounds, but taking your hypothetical on its terms, if the court is not going to do that, we would urge the court to affirm on this record and based on this briefing with respect to the statutory arguments as well. With respect to the First Amendment and the tailoring issues, one point I would like to make is that uh, it's not necessary for the courts to get into the question of whether the government has to consider less restrictive alternatives. It does have to do that, and that's clear under the case law, but this court could straightforwardly affirm the district court's decision by holding that the warnings here are unduly burdensome because of their extreme and unprecedented burden on speech, and that is sufficient to resolve this case. The American beverage decision from the Ninth Circuit sitting on Bonk is a good example. That was a case that involved textual warnings only on 20% of certain advertisements, but not on the packs at all. And the government in that case came into court with an expert report saying 20% is needed. And the Ninth Circuit looked at that report and considered the evidence de novo and held that that was incorrect and that 20% was too much of a burden and it ruled in favor of the speaker in that case. It didn't have to get into anything else and that would be an appropriate way to resolve this case. Also, the Supreme Court's NIFLA decision is another one that I would point this court to. There, the court invalidated the unlicensed, what was called the unlicensed notice requirement because it was unduly burdensome under Zouderer. It was a text-only warning. It wasn't nearly as provocative and gruesome as what we're dealing with here, uh, but it was nonetheless so big that it was drowning out the speech at issue there, and the Supreme Court resolved the case under the unduly burdensome prong and didn't have to get into anything else. Uh, so that would, under NIFLA and under American Beverage, those would be a straightforward way to affirm the district court's very well-reasoned decision below. All right. Um, if you have a conclusion in one minute, you may go ahead and do that, or if you've said everything that you need to say, that's fine too. Uh, I would just, just urge the court to understand that, in this case, the unprecedented, gruesome, provocative, and misleading images at issue here 
which cannot be severed from the text, uh, or something that would have vast implications. The government has never required something like this, but its theories would allow it to start slapping these sorts of images on, again, fast food bags, products that include animal byproducts, wine bottles, and things of that nature. And the government has never disputed that those are the implications of its theory. That's a very damaging uh, theory, and we would urge this court to not be the first one ever to apply Zouderer to a compelled image requirement like this, but even if this court does apply Zouderer, uh, the huge burden on speech here dictates that affirmance is appropriate. All right, th thank, uh, thank you, you Mr. Watson. Thank you. Ms. Powell for rebuttal. So can you uh, respond to uh, Mr. Watson's comment about Section 201? What he said was that Section 201 requires that the graphics and text must appear together. I assume that was at least in part a comment on, on, on severability, but, but what, what does 201 do or not do here? Yes, Your Honor. All that provision says is that FDA, and I'm quoting now, shall issue regulations that require color graphics depicting the negative health consequences of smoking to accompany the label statements. It simply establishes the directive to FDA to pick images that go with the label statements. It doesn't say anything about what happens if the images are unconstitutional. It doesn't give any suggestion that Congress would not have wanted the other aspects of these warnings that it's updated not to take effect if the images cannot take effect. So that to, to hang the entire argument on to a company, I think is quite extraordinary. There's simply nothing that those words do other than say, operating on the assumption that all of this is valid, Congress wants images to go with the statements. It does not speak to what happens if the images are not valid. What does speak to what happens if the images are not valid are, are two separate things. One, there's a severability clause. And two, there are the findings by Congress that this small text only warnings have been ineffective to address the very significant problem of people not understanding the very serious and undisputed harms that these products cause when they're used as directed. And Congress sought to address that problem by making the warnings bigger, by updating the warning statements, because the, the old statements have grown stale, they've been in effect for decades, so updating the text of the statements is an important part of this, and implementing images. So there are three different aspects at issue. Congress cared about each of them, uh, and you couple that with the severability clause, and it's, it's clear that whatever is valid should take effect. There's also a presumption in the law, of course, that severability principles apply, and that if um, it's intended that provisions go into, can go into effect, uh, and they can function on their own as these ones can, that that's the result that should follow. So to go back to your question, to accompany speaks not at all to severability and much of the rest of the statute. Yeah, uh, Mr. Watson also uh, made the comment uh, that the requirements here with the images uh, diminishes the ability of the various companies to distinguish between and among their products. He gave the example of the, of the, of the camel, which seems fair. Uh, that, of course, is a legitimate First Amendment uh, interest. So. To, to what extent do we do, do we look at the fact that there's obviously a diminution in the ability to distinguish? There is a diminution, not in the precise way they suggest, to be clear. The, the mock-up image that gets rid of the camel 
is just an artistic choice made in that, the, the camel can still stand. If they want the camel on their package, there's plenty of room for the camel. They just chose to mock it up that way to try to make a point. But not, nothing in any of the requirements here precludes the inclusion of the camel or any other sort of rebranding. It does take up more space. There's no question about that. And again, that's a statutory requirement, not a requirement of this rule. Congress said they need to be bigger to be seen. Congress made a lot of findings to support that determination. But and that would have its limits under the First Amendment. I mean, you, you couldn't take away all, all graphics or designs from the, from, from the package. Correct. And the um, you know, extent of the government's showing, of course, depends on whether we're talking about Zouder or Central Hudson. But under Zouder, again, the, the question is undue burden. And that goes to the analysis in Ibanez and Public Citizen that I referred to before, whether it really is so extensive that it precludes plaintiff speech. This does not. They have 80% of advertising space, 50% of product packages to still undertake their own speech. That's vastly different from the facts of those other cases where an undue burden was found. And under Central Hudson, it's, it's a fit test. And there are extensive findings made by Congress to support the 50% requirement. Uh, FDA also cited a lot of um, evidence supporting the need for larger warnings. And whether it's 30% or 40% or 50%, the Supreme Court in Burson versus Freeman and this court in Shermer versus Edwards has said that that is not of constitutional dimension, that courts don't sit to decide whether, in those cases, it was the distance around polling places that needed to be speech-free zones, didn't right. and, sit. And while, while you have time, I'm, in, I'm interrupting you again, but uh, uh, could, could you answer the question that I asked Mr. Watson about uh, whether uh, whether we should decide the APA uh, claims if we d discount uh, the, the First Amendment issues. Yes, Your Honor. The court should decide those claims if it uh, agrees that the warnings are constitutional and can otherwise go into effect, and it should reject the plaintiff's arguments for the reasons stated in our briefing. But, but it, we should not remand for the for, for the APA. Is correct, that, correct, that, Your Honor. Yeah. And if I if I may, can I make one point very? Well, I, I gave Mr. Watson an extra minute, and you may have an extra minute to say whatever you'd like to. Thank you, Your Honor. I, I do want to correct one thing that was suggested uh, earlier in the argument, which is that review here uh, is de novo with respect to the agency's findings. Of course, the summary judgment determination is reviewed de novo, and the government does have the burden of establishing the constitutionality of these claims. But within that framework, Turner Broadcasting establishes that the government's determinations, this is Congress's with respect to the size of the warnings and uh, the agency's with respect to scientific findings supporting the need for images in these particular statements, those are entitled to deference. And that's an important point in all of this. This is not a, a he said, she said about whether um, you know, a, a scientific finding is true or not. The court, of course, sits in review of the record here, but the agency made scientific findings. Two quick questions. What yep. kind of deference, and um, why would we not remand to let the district court grapple with those questions first? The, so the, the deference is the same type of deference that, that the agency would typically be entitled to with, with respect to its scientific judgments. So... Uh, I'm not, I'm not sure what, what label to put on that, but this is not the court sitting, you know, in, in giving uh, equal consideration to the declarations they cite of a single physician uh, saying, I, do, I don't often see neck tumors that gruesome versus the agency having undertaken very careful scientific review and extensive study to say these particular images with these statements have been shown to communicate effectively uh, with viewers. 
that's, that is a determination that's entitled to deference in the same way that it would be under an APA review when the court is assessing the record to determine whether the agency's decision is arbitrary and capricious. So the agency is expert in these matters, and that, that matters here. Um, and the same, the same is true, Turner Broadcasting says, with respect to the size determination, that Congress is entitled to some deference on its determination that warnings of this size are appropriate. But why not remand? Uh, because, Your Honor, the, the district court was already presented with and in its own way considered these issues. I mean, it went, it went through the images and said uh, some very unpersuasive things about why, in its view, these warnings were, were controversial and uh, didn't meet the standard. It, it's already taken a pass at answering that question. It answered it incorrectly, but a remand is not, not necessary for the court to take another pass at that. For these reasons, we ask that you reverse. Thank you. Uh, 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 thank you, Ms. Powell. You, your case is under submission. It's the last case for today.